Hey there, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer. Today's program is the last in our month-long series celebrating Black histories, current realities, and futures in the mountains and beyond. We were joined in the studio this afternoon by the cast of Kentucky Opera's O Freedom. They performed segments of the show and talked about the importance of music and art in education. They also explained how opera singers amplify their voices without microphones and about the challenges of wearing a corset on stage. Finally, they speak about the power of music to connect us across difference. My name is Marquise Carter. I'm a tenor. I live currently in Bloomington, Indiana, but um, I lived in Louisville, Kentucky for about six years and I'm from Marion, Indiana. Um, Currently, I'm working on my doctorate in voice at Indiana University. Hi, I'm Jasmine Salaverios, and I am from Delaware, uh, where I did my undergrad at Delaware State University and my master's program at the University of Delaware. Um, I currently, in between gigs, I teach at an elementary school, uh, Town Point Elementary. I teach music and art. My name is Arthur Bosarge. I am a native of Fairhope, Alabama. I am a pianist working in opera and musical theater, and currently I am a member of the Sanford Studio Artist Program at Kentucky Opera. Cool. Well, it's really exciting to have y'all here today. Um, And thank you for that performance, which was really wonderful. Um, So I wonder if you could tell us about Oh Freedom. Like, what is this show? Um, What is it in its normal full-length form? Where are you performing it? Um, Uh, Oh Freedom is the journey of African-Americans from being in West Africa, the West Coast of Africa, to freedom and civil rights here in the United States. And um, particularly what we're doing with the show is we're going out into different elementary, mostly elementary schools. We are going to a couple of, um, we've done a couple of workplace things and we've gone to a couple of um, secondary schools as well. But primarily we go into these elementary schools and we tell the story of African-American history through song. So we go from 
um, Kumbaya, which actually comes from the Gullah people in West Africa. And we go all the way through the spirituals, the code songs that were used during slavery and their underground railroad songs. And then we make our way all the way to um, even art songs that were made in the Harlem Renaissance. And we end up talking about Barack Obama in 2012, his reelection. So it's a really nice holistic way to talk about African-American history, but it's an oral and oral history as well as the written down history that we're explaining. Yeah, I wonder if you could talk about like, do, um, what do you think are sort of the benefits to teaching history through song and specifically this history? Like, do you think there's ways in which um, using art and music and performance is effective in ways that other mm. forms of like historical lessons aren't? Oh, absolutely. It definitely reaches the the whole need of the child. If a child needs visuals, they have their visuals, they have musical cues that help them feel the emotion about what we're, what we're doing. And typically, I think with almost anybody, when you attach emotion in some type of visual, um, a, even a song per se, that allows you to remember exactly what you're talking about. Most tragic events that we remember in our lives is because it made us feel something. Mm -hmm. And that's what this program does. Yeah. And I agree with Jasmine. I think um, along with that, the the participatory aspect. I mean, when we do during the show, when we go into the schools, one a couple of the different songs we do, we involve the kids. Um, in this little light of mine, we do a more upbeat version and we ask all the students to tell us something that you're good at. And then they raise their hand and they might say this basketball, I'm really good at basketball. And we'll say this basketball of mine, mm -hmm. I'm going to let it shine. Mm -hmm. And because of that, like participatory aspect, then I feel like that imprints in their mind. I'm involved in this and therefore I'm going to remember it. And I'm um, just from like a teaching perspective, anytime students get involved, like from a motor capacity, like they start to move around, they start to learn more and they, it ingrains in their memory. I can still remember when people came to my elementary school and we didn't have opera come, but I remember having someone come and tell stories about spirituals and tell, do some African storytelling and I still remember that because it was so participatory and particularly from the African-American perspective um, the aspects of call and response and um, audience participation uh, improvisation all those things kind of inherently involve the audience in the storytelling and so it's it's a really unique way to tell um, the story of African-American history using our music and using our history to kind of weave it together into one big art form. And, and many times some of the kids actually know some of the songs that we're singing. So while we're performing, we're looking out mm -hmm. into the crowd and the kids are singing along with us or mouthing the words as we go. So that's something that's also very cool. They have um, the information around like the textual con context of the actual song because we're giving that to them. They have something to relate it to. Since most slaves could not read or write. The only way that they had to communicate was through stories, songs, and other crafts. Like quilting. Many of these songs were code songs, meaning that slaves would sing these songs to each other to relay information about escaping. We're going to sing a few code songs for you, and we'll let you know what each of them mean as we go along. Trouble the water. 
By telling the slaves to leave the path and wade in the water, this would throw off their scent to the search dogs chasing after them. One person who loved this song was Harriet Tubman. She was a leader of the Underground Railroad. She was never caught, and she never lost a passenger. Harriet believed she had two choices in life. I had reasoned this in my mind, that there was one of two things I had the right to, liberty or death. If I could not have one, I would have the other, for no man should take me alive. I would fight for my liberty as long as my strength lasted, and when the time come for me to go, the Lord would have them take me. Our next song is one of the most famous code songs, Follow the Drinking Gourd. This song was coined by a one-legged sailor, who you all may have heard of, Peg Leg Joe. He traveled from plantation to plantation, teaching slaves this song. The first verse tells the slaves that they should leave during the winter because it was much, much easier to cross the Ohio River if it was frozen. The drinking gourd refers to the Big Dipper, pointing out the North Star. The old man is... Peg Leg Joe. And the Great Big River was the Ohio River. When the sun comes back and the first quail calls, follow the drinking gourd, for the old man is awaiting for to carry you to freedom. Follow the drinking gourd. Follow the drinking gourd. Follow the drinking gourd. For the old man is awaiting for to carry you to freedom. Follow the drinking gourd. Our final code song is Swing Low Sweet Chariot. Now this song uses call and response. Call and response has been a long-known term associated with the African-American spiritual. The leader would start, Can I get an amen? Amen! Can I get an amen? Amen! And as you all have heard, everyone else answers. This particular code song was a favorite of Harriet Tubman's. In fact, in her final hours of life, her friend sang this song for her. So now we are going to go ahead and demonstrate this code song for you, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot.
So for listeners and potentially your interviewer who don't know a whole lot about opera, like how does this work? Is this common that so like a state will have uh, performers from other places come and do a particular show Mm -hmm. and you come back over and over? Or is it like people get contracted for one show? How does this kind of whole world work? Uh, I'll, I'll take this one. Um, so what happens is we uh, audition for places like Kentucky Opera and we, for singers, they bring in a certain number of uh, excerpts from the operatic literature to perform for a panel and the staff is there listening to them and they listen to many auditions during a day, sometimes, you know, like a hundred singers a day and they'll, you know, and then they'll select who they like. And usually it's a very select number, like a, a soprano, a, an alto, a tenor, and a bass. And I'm the pianist, so I'm pianist too. And uh, what happens is these contracts last for several months. I've been with Kentucky Opera. This is my second season with them. Uh, I've been here in in Louisville since August with a little break here and there. But when we're not on one gig, we're usually on another gig. Uh, so it's kind of piecing a, an existence together with work that's all across the country. I've been everywhere from Kentucky. I've been in the Northeast and uh, Vermont, New Hampshire. I'll be in Utah this summer. So it's really, you just go where the work is. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of classical singers who kind of just do it all. Like I particularly, I teach voice lessons. Um, I go to school. I have like a day job on top of that. And then when I get a contract, um, I have a couple like recording gigs coming up. But um, yeah, we, we kind of just do a piecemeal um a piecemeal career based on you know what you can do and what your interests and other gifts in addition to your singing are i usually connect it um for people um it's like being in a construction uh job Mm. you know you kind of go wherever that contract is and whatever skills you have to offer that's what that's what you offer in that company Mm -hmm. yeah Mm. yeah and and like all kind of most other musicians, right? <laughs> yeah, not like just singers. On the road a lot and <laughs> yeah, trying absolutely. to figure out where that where that next gig is going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like a mother's child. Sometimes I feel like a mother's child. Sometimes I feel like a mother's child A long way from home A long way from home A long way from talk a little bit about opera and I don't even know if I have a very specific question but you know opera isn't super common here in eastern Kentucky we we don't see it much or hear it much mostly unless we really seek Mm -hmm. it out so like I don't know maybe some history of opera or like even what um like are there things that need to be included for it to be opera versus 
a different kind of musical theater, which is kind of a whole other thing, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I can give a little bit of a flyby history you, of you opera. S- I'm sure we'll all add on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a flyby history, since I'm more a music history buff. But uh, opera really started in in Venice, and a little bit before that, just in Italy. Uh, the believe the first opera uh, was Perry's L'Orfeo, and that was a very stripped-down version of opera with continuo which is just a harpsichord and a couple of instruments and a singer or two or three and that's it and now we opera has grown into this bigger thing through history that includes like a full-size orchestra including your string section your brass your woodwinds full string orchestra opera choruses um and and more complex plots um so i mean there's a lot of stops along the way but we generally think in terms of you know, Renaissance is early, early Renaissance is like when, or the late Renaissance is when opera starts. Then we have through the classical period, we have operas by Mozart. The orchestra gets a little bit bigger. Um, the librettos become a little less based on What's a mythology. And a libretto, that's a good thing to say. A libretto is essentially like if you're thinking about musical theater, um, the lyrics in the music will be called the book. Libretto just means little book in Italian. But a libretto, we're talking about opera. So um, in opera, you have a composer who writes the music, the arias, which are the parts of the opera that the singers sing. Um, and then he works with a librettist, which is someone who creates the text sometime, for the opera. Sometimes it's an adaptation of a pre-existing novel, like in Marriage of Figaro, um, the Beaumarchais plays. This guy, Beaumarchais, wrote three different plays about these characters, but then the librettist adjusted it to be more appropriate for an opera. Kind of like how a movie gets turned into a musical. Exactly. (laughs) Or a book gets adapted to, like the Harry Potter books get adapted to a movie, and then we all say, something was missing. But we don't care in opera because the music makes it so larger than life that we don't miss the rest of it. So that's kind of like a big, big, big flyby. And of course... There are a lot of stylistic variations depending on what century the operas were went, written in. But Arthur probably can even add to that. Uh, I, I, you mentioned the difference between opera and musical theater. I'd have to say that the the difference between opera and musical theater is that, first of all, we we in opera, I know we're speaking on my and speaking with microphones today in the studio, but in opera we use our, uh, the singers use our, their voices and their bodies to project their sound over a full orchestra in a house without amplification. They use their vocal cords and they use their breath to help their vocal cords vibrate together and they use all the resonance in their in their heads and some singers have more resonance than others in, uh, depending on like how their body is made sometimes and uh, or how, how, how their voice or their chords are structured. Uh, there's so many factors that go into that. And they're again, they're able to do it without... A microphone at all you go to like uh beyonce's concerts or something you see her little like little side mic and she's you know be able to like kind of like not project too much you know but she's still able to hear her because she's got a microphone on <laughs> these guys are able to sing over a full orchestra it still fascinates me i don't know how they do it but they do it and it's if you come you'll you'll be just fascinated by what the human body can do uh and if you go to again like a beyonce concert or even a musical nowadays if you go to Broadway you see something uh, like the the Phantom of the Opera those guys are going to be using microphones as well because they have to also they have to sing uh, so many shows a week you know eight shows a week maybe two matinees 
and there your voice gets tired and with opera we're able to have a one or two days of rest in between each show uh, to kind of let the voice uh, rest rejuvenate and be able to scream all over again for uh, over an orchestra for another <laughs> performance uh, also in in musical opera and musical theater I think that musical theater the style of the music is sometimes in a more popular vein that is to say you know you have musicals that were in maybe like the the 30s and 40s Rodgers and Hammerstein South Pacific uh, King and I those were uh, in made in the style of music that in in the day you have uh, today musicals like uh, Dear Evan Hansen which is very rock have uh, oriented and uh, I think sometimes the the scripts aren't necessarily lighter in tone that you have some serious musicals as well as comedic musicals the same way we have serious operas and comedic operas but I think those are the two main differences between opera and musical theater mm-hmm. Absolutely. so here's me attempting to ask a question sort of following up on what you just said about using the body to amplify but I noticed you do a thing Jasmine during one of the songs where you were like I, I don't have words for this, but you were singing with your mouth closed. Mm-hmm. Is that is that is there like a name for that? Is that a specific thing that's a part of opera? I was humming, um, but um, it's just called humming. Well, I, it's not. <laughs> a, I mean, Anybody I guess I could. I didn't know hum. the word for that. <laughs> it's one of those. It's one of those things where um, I don't believe there's an actual term anywhere for it when it's Boca Cusa in, in Italian. Boca Cusa. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's just one of those things where I do use my technique as far as making sure my soft palate is lifted. And because of my voice type, I'm able to um, to hum at that resonance at higher pitches. And so it's it's a very easy, it, it is just a hum with a, <laughs> with a lifted soft palate. So I'm like applying my technique that I learned in my voice lessons to just Closing my mouth and doing the same thing, but with my mouth closed and using all of the resonance, as um, Arthur was saying earlier, using our head, uh, spaces of our head as resonating cavities. And that's what's happening while I'm humming to kind of amplify the sound. And if you want to get really deeper into the science of it, which I won't get too deep, but... <laughs> no, I know. mean, I actually, it's pretty interesting to me because is this like a conscious? Like, are you, how much in terms of training for opera are you like thinking about how to use the... the cavities of your well good like, singers shouldn't have to right. <laughs> I, think, I think a good like vocal pedagogy method you know empowers students to know what they're doing while they're singing but then so you're the conscious process is the practice going to mm. the practice room learning your notes and rhythms knowing oh i'm a little flat on that pitch why am i my teacher says i need to raise my soft palate which engages a certain resonance space. But now, after I work through that in the practice room, I get on the stage and I have to find a way to make that an unconscious motor activity that says, oh, I'm flat. And you think that and you fix it. Not, I'm flat, let's raise the soft palate. And is my, are my eyes right? Is my face right? Oh, my throat. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the show stops being Marriage of Figaro and it starts being um, Failure of a Soprano. So, <laughs> so and I think... That's something that that's a really hard line to toe. I think a lot of singers go through points, especially like when they're young and they feel like, man, I just don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to um, navigate all of these different things that we're coordinating between breath, phonation, bringing the vocal folds together, posture and alignment, making sure there's no tension in the body, resonance, making sure that we're using all these resonant spaces in an appropriate way so that when you say, ah, it is an ah, because mm. your cloth power flow or something like that. But um, I will say, you know, when Jasmine's doing that high hum thing, it's it's more than just like your typical 
Um, she's actually lowered her larynx through her breath and raised her soft palate. And so she has more vertical space in her oropharynx, that throat part back here. And by closing her mouth, she's using the sphenoid sinuses, which are right between your eyebrows, and the nasopharynx, which is about right in here. And she couples those resonators to get like an acoustical boost. So that's what we call that in voice science. But I bet you, Jasmine did not think, let's engage my sphenoid sinuses. She's like, it's an easy hum. It's just a hum. It's no big deal. I was like, that is not how I hum. Yeah, because somewhere along the way, Jasmine was told that this is a technique and she found that it works. And now it's it's a proprioceptive response. The brain Here's, here's has her to thing be reflexive. That. That's yeah, I yeah. think that's the the key. You can't mm-hmm. you can't be you know you, how are you going to ever communicate a story mm-hmm. or anything like that when you're thinking about all those kind of things. Those opera singers have so much to think about. They have mm-hmm. to also we didn't mention these guys today are singing without a conductor. Usually there's a full orchestra down there and there's a guy waving a stick down there mm-hmm. and they have to be in time. They have to be follow you know otherwise though there's uh, dis, you know, there's not any coordination between what's on stage and what's in the pit. And so it's you know like, and so how many things do we have to think about uh, with mm-hmm. your breath, your singing, the conductor, the staging, the, the stage music, director. the notes, the sta- yeah the director sometimes. Sometimes you're, if your colleagues mess up during a show mm. and you have to you have to kind of jump to or sometimes you have to jump around or you have to cover for them or there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I always say that singers have to be some of the most limber music or limber musicians and artists because they have to be able to play teacher to themselves, actor out here, singer, you know, thinking about all these things, they have to be a technician. And they have to be an artist. They have to create things and they have to create something that's uniquely theirs while staying with some sort of tradition. We There's all these established traditions of how certain operas should be sang or how you should embellish or make them your own. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT 88.7 FM, broadcasting from the Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. We're joined in the studio today by the cast of Kentucky Opera's O oh Freedom. Thank you. 
especially for um the two of you who who sing like did you always did you always want to do music but did you know that that was opera or like how did you mm. fall in love with opera uh well, I literally fell in love with opera because I didn't. It snuck up on me and I fell. So, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I grew up in a very small town in Indiana. Um, my grandfather was a janitor at my public school. My grandmother was a psych ward nor- nurse at the VA in town, and so that is not a likely start for an opera singer. Um, but I grew up sang- um, hearing them listen to Earth, Wind, and Fire and the great like funk and R&B musicians. And I learned really qu- quickly that I could imitate that sound and I could imitate what they did. I could match pitch. And so from then on, I was just like in love because I thought, oh, this is something I can do. I can do it well. And that's sort of a sor- early source of confidence for me. Um, fast forward to high school and through the terrible years of middle school and, and high school. Fast, for- <laughs> fast forward to high school and I got to the point where it was time to graduate and I thought, well... The classes I loved the most and most consistently were Spanish and music. And the, the subject that I thought was the most exciting was teaching. And I said, well, I guess we'll do music with a minor in Spanish. Well, I failed my first Spanish class in college. And so <laughs> I stayed with the music thing and thought I'd do music ed. Um, found that I didn't really like working in a large classroom. Um, but I kept singing and I kept working on my vocal technique and I found, you know, in college, what you're learning when you do a voice degree, which I didn't realize at first, was you're learning classical music. I thought I was going to be singing Stevie Wonder. So um, <laughs> I got there, and they said, here's some French piece. Here's an Italian piece. And I said, uh. And I worked on it, and I found I loved it because it, it combined all the things I loved. I always loved reading. And if you do art song, which is, you know, classical music that's not in an opera, but based on some other poem written in a musical classical style with probably a piano, a singer. And then there's a poet. Um, I fell in love with um, analyzing these texts and trying to bring them to life and translating them. I, I mean, opera singers have to sing in French, German, Italian. I've sung in Latvian, Swahili, all kinds of other languages. And I just loved that interaction with text, getting to work musically. And I just fell in love with that process. And I found out you could teach one-on-one. So <laughs> doing that. And so I kind of just fell slowly and slowly and slowly into love with opera and into love with teaching singing and it's been a great path for me well growing up i always sang in church since i was about four years old um however my voice i could not sing very well um but everyone at my church would tell me oh my goodness you're doing so great and they applaud me and they just were so supportive so i never knew that i couldn't really carry a tune i thought i was just this amazing child star singing these songs up there (laughs) And uh, I didn't know that until I was like 14. Somebody showed me a recording. I was like, whoa. <laughs> but um, as far as more churches concerned, uh, they really, really supported me. And that helped me continue doing that. And that's how I knew that I wanted to perform. And actually, when I was in children's choir, I sang tenor, which is, uh, for those of <laughs> us who don't know <laughs> what that is, it's a higher male voice part in a choir. And so in all of my ensembles, I sang tenor. And one day I picked the song to sing at church that had some higher notes in it. And my mother was just looked at me and she said, Jasmine, uh, you, you can sing that? And I said, I said, yeah, yeah, I can. And so I started singing a little, <laughs> a little higher repertoire. And I guess just naturally I was working on my voice without really thinking about it because, of course, I didn't know it needed work. And um, so when I got to applying for colleges, I wanted to go to Berklee College of Music. Of course, by then my voice had actually gotten 
hadn't gotten better. And so I auditioned for Berklee College of Music, and I wanted to sing contemporary songs or even um, gospel or, you know, Christian contemporary, anything like that. Um, but Berkeley was just so expensive. So I ended up going to my state school, Delaware State, where I met my awesome voice teacher who completely just changed my realm of even thoughts. I never knew I would be here singing classical music or opera. I was one of those people who thought that when you sign up to be a music major, you just sing it all day long. Mm -hmm. I was one of those people. <laughs> and with opera, I was one of those people mocking opera, you know, not in a bad way, but just, you know, mimicking it in the car. And I used to even, the first few weeks of school, I skipped some of my voice lessons because I was just like, man, I don't want to sing John Jacob Niles. I don't want to sing this. And, um, but over time, I ended up realizing that it was something that felt amazing. I got a different connection than just singing these songs because of the, the text. It was, it was way more than that. I think the investment, just like Marquise was talking about mm -hmm. with translating and all of that, the investments in the stories and the composers and seeing exactly their reasonings behind writing these beautiful works is what really drew me in. And uh, since the, excuse me, since then, I've been just in love with every aspect of it, from art song to opera. Even I've gotten into some more 21st century pieces as well. Not my favorite, but I really enjoy the connection with them with other genres of music. And so since then, it's just been, that's just been what's been the greatest part of me living, just feeling great in the technique, as well as being very present on the stage in everything that's happening. like him the river of joining heated cause no man works like him for he is king of kings lord of lords oh jesus christ the first and last oh king jesus rides in the middle of the air no he calls the saints from everywhere oh Costumes for a minute. Do you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Do you get to wear like really elaborate, fancy, fun things sometimes? 
The Sopranos usually get that. <laughs> can, you, can you even explain who who's wearing what? Or yes, not, yes, I'm yes. sorry, who's singing what? <laughs> yeah, uh, like, what voice what, types? Yeah, do exactly, what. exactly. Sure, um, I can do that. Um, soprano is the highest female voice type, and then down from there is what we call a mezzo, and below that, it's little, sort of what people would think of as an alto. So below soprano is a mezzo soprano, and then there's a tenor, which is the highest male voice. Then there's the baritone, which is sort of the middle of the road male voice, and then there's a bass. Within each of those categories, there are subcategories that only that <laughs> opera singers know that no one that if I tried to explain, no one would really get. But I'll say like the high, high, high soprano is a coloratura soprano, um, and then the low, low, low bass is the basso profundo, the the very, very deep bass that I'm not. And, <laughs> and, yeah, within each of those categories, there's so many sort of subcategories that say, this is my specialty. I can sing fast, or I can sing very strong and steely sound, or I can sing very light. So, yeah, there are a lot of different subcategories within that. Anyone want to add anything? I think that's, that's pretty yeah, much I think it. about covers. Yeah. Yeah. So back to costumes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> are there, like, is, because... Again, for like listeners who haven't ever been to an opera, what it, what is it like visually? Hmm. Well, it can range from anything. If you're we have a a traditional production, which you might see, you know, hoop skirts and powdered wigs or something like that, or uh, uh, Kentucky Opera's recent production of Barbara Seville, we the director decided to set the production in the 1960s. Uh, traditionally, the production is set in the 1700s, uh, but we they updated it to the 1960s. There are go-go boots and like mod mm-hmm. clothes and uh, all these amazing colors and and things. So I guess it depends on what kind of production you go to, whether it's a, a traditional one or a an updated one. And for women, I always feel sorry for the women who have to do the the traditional shows. Not because oh, their music yeah. isn't good, but Jasmine, what do women have to wear? In those oh, the corsets. Those tight oh, corsets, corsets. Yeah. and they had to breathe within that. I've, sing. I've heard but it I helps. Yeah, some people say, say it, it helps. I yeah. mean, for for me, it it definitely gives me that boost that I need for for my breath. When I'm mm-hmm. going around on stage, you know, there's at no point can I become a lazy singer because my body is already engaged. <laughs> I just have to stay that way the whole yep. entire time. Mm-hmm. Now, changing costumes with that kind of thing, that is a little bit, a bit much. I was doing uh, out, outside of opera, a little bit into musical theater at the moment. I did a performance of The Wiz in which I was Glinda. And they allowed me um, to have the privilege of buying my, picking my own gown that I wanted to wear. So I purchased this gown that had a corset backing just because it was beautiful. And whoa, 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 that was a <laughs> terrible idea <laughs> because I was also singing on the side. So I'm trying to change out my clothes and then putting on this thing and having to have somebody fix my all the lacing in the back. <laughs> it was just, whoa, Jasmine, won't do that again. But, you know, it, it was it was fun. Rushing around was fun. But, <laughs> yeah, sometimes it can be a little a little taxing. Um, but I can mm-hmm. say what I do enjoy about wearing about um, performances and costuming is that you don't have to worry about most of the time wearing anything that is extremely, extremely uncomfortable because at at the base of it all, you're still a singer. And so you still have to be able to do the work. And so that's what I can say about it being an awesome 
an awesome thing with costumes. Mm-hmm. And I've never had to do the corset thing, but I've certainly had <laughs> to do. I did a show uh, by Tchaikovsky, Olanta, and it's I think it's in the 13th century. It's very it's kind of medieval, and I had to wear these tights. And I swear, like I don't know, maybe I was just eating too much. But by the end of them, those tights <laughs> were so tight I could barely walk in them. I had these ballet shoes and just this frock that I was walking. Around. <laughs> It was very sort of proto-human, just walking around, floating about. Yeah, that, but I don't. I'm so glad I have to deal with the corset thing. But you gotta try they, one they'll on. Do it's other. not. It's not that okay, bad. Okay, I'll have to try it sometime. <laughs> the next time I do Marriage of Figaro, I did get a blue zoot suit one time. That was my oh. favorite. I got this big blue zoot yes. suit uh, for uh, what was it? It was for. Um, the Impresario, which is a really funny opera by Mozart, and I got to wear this big like gangster zoot suit, so it's kind of nice. <laughs> That's awesome. Our next piece is a poem by Langston Hughes. He used his poetry to express the struggles and triumphs of his people. In his poem, I Too, set to music by African-American composer Margaret Bonds, he talks about having pride and dignity when in the face of adversity and racism. Sing America, I am the Tartar brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes. But I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Sit at the table when company comes. Nobody'll dare say to me, Eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful. I too am America. So I think I think we'll we'll wrap up here, but I wanted to ask you all, um so so this mountain talk is sort of fitting into um, a month-long series for Black History Month that we've been doing here at WMMT, but we've been trying to think about how to um, talk about Black history uh, in relation to the current moment, too, right? And that this isn't this isn't kind of a a story that's over, and that it isn't something that we only need to talk about during the month of February. So I wonder if you all have any kind of thoughts around the the use of like arts and music in kind of the current political moment in our country um, where there's a lot of like division around a lot of different topics, including people's like 
really polarized ideas around like racial justice right and so mm -hmm. i don't know just if you have thoughts of like the benefits of using arts and music um to having conversations across uh identity in this country mm -hmm. i would say now more than ever it's needed um actually the program this program has caused kids to ask certain questions like does slavery still exist today and they are they are definitely present in what's going on around them and they are thinking about it and it actually this program actually opened my eyes to it i didn't know that children were really really paying attention to these things in detail and they are they're looking at what their parents do they're looking at what their classmates do and they're listening for for these answers and so a program uh an arts program teaching them about uh, these things that are going on around them is so, so important because of the impact it has. Because it's easy to just tell a child, oh, yeah, uh, well, slavery's over. You know, they might be existing someplace and just tell them the surface. And that just goes right over their head. They're like, oh, OK, it doesn't sound very important. So just going to go ahead and forget about it. But um, with O Freedom, the impact really, really causes their mind to turn and the gears to go and wonder, well, if this happened then and it was so, so awful, then what happens at this part in the world and what's going on there? What's the what's the influence? And I think um, having the arts being a part of that teaches them and shows them that influence. Mm -hmm. And I will I will just say that I think a lot of the division that we see is due to our inability or our unwillingness to see each other as complex individuals it's really easy under the guise of a political affiliation or the guise of a certain position on a topic to then boil down someone to an icon of what they are instead of the fullness of who that person is. And something that music does is it speaks directly to the heart. It's the language of musicians sharing a piece of their heart. I don't think it's even possible. It's hard. I mean, maybe people try to, but it's really hard to sing anything without giving away a piece of yourself or putting a piece of yourself in it. And in that, it almost, and I mean, I've experienced that it usually endears people and makes them want to have those conversations. I've sung spirituals in, um, in churches where there aren't any black people. And I've sung them in rooms full of African Americans. And I look out and almost always someone wants to come up afterward and say, wow, thank you for singing that music. Even if they have no idea what the songs mean or what they're referring to or what I was thinking about. But I love turning those conversations into what did you like about that? Or what did you think of it? What do you think it's about? Or turn that into a real conversation as a moment to see someone and to truly see people. I think that's something that music forces us to do and invites us into. Um, it's easy to see what someone presents or to see what we categorize someone as, and to not really see them and truly see them. Um, I can't stop saying that word because I think it's so powerful. Um, there was a, some, I can't remember which podcast it was. It was somewhere on NPR, but someone said for Lent, they, they were going to start seeing people. And that's what I decided I would do for Lent. And it's actually kind of hard because there's so many people we walk by or people that we encounter and we immediately say, no. I don't want to talk to them or immediately say, oh, they're this type of person. I don't need to talk to them. And I'm guilty of it. And by allowing ourselves and inviting ourselves to do that, 
and particularly through music, I think what we start to do is humanize our conversations instead of just having conversations about ideologies that aren't person, you know, aren't personages. But we actually have discussions about real people and real issues, and we were able to come together and enjoy this human experience through music. So. Absolutely. I think one of the one of the sad things is a lot of times with spirituals, people ask for them to be entertained. Mm. And our history by no means is for anyone's entertainment. Mm. And I think that with this type of program, it's starting to show kids, hey, this isn't just a song that you clap to and jump around and praise the Lord to. These mm. songs have meanings uh, from the code songs and um, just singing songs where they are rejoicing, but they're not just rejoicing because they're trying to have a good time in the Lord all the time. They're rejoicing because they've come from something so deeply rooted, something so awful, the pain and the torture that they've endured. And I think that that's also a reason why sharing this music is extremely important because they see the pain evoking on our faces when we sing these songs. And they know that it's something deeper than just a form of entertainment. And, you know, this reminds me, every time I sing the song that you all heard, I too sing America, um, set by Margaret Bonds, but the poem is Langston Hughes. Every time I sing that, no matter what's going on, what kids being pulled out of the cafeteria <laughs> or what the, what distraction is happening, I almost immediately am in character for that one because it's so powerful to me. I too sing America. I am the darker brother. Mm -hmm. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes. And I just think I, I immediately am just put in that moment. And how can anyone not listen to that song and start to empathize with the character? And I start to think that that way of presenting that story as a person and using the personal I too instead of we too. I think Langston Hughes did that on purpose because he wanted to force people into sing beyond at this point of it i mean a lot of people focus on langston hughes's jazz poetry or his blues poetry that's in dialect because it's fun it's novel but a lot oftentimes i tell people about this poem they don't know what i'm talking about um they know you know my life ain't been no crystal stare the other one the, mm -hmm. the uh, was it mother to son they know yeah. that one but this one is a harder message and it's actually in response to um Help me, Walt, Walt Whitman. Whitman. Walt Whitman, I hear America singing. Langston Hughes read that, and he chose this poem to respond to it and say, "Well, guess what? I too sing America, except I'm invisible." As Ralph Ellison would say, "I'm the invisible man. Mm -hmm. um, I am the darker brother." And so it's calling attention to this problem, but it's doing it through such a compelling medium of music, and it's such a personal narrative that I just find that this, I've not been to a school yet where the kids are talking during this song. Mm -hmm. There might have been one. But they always focus in because, well, for one, I sit down in a chair and I, I go very emo in this one. But I sit down in the chair and they all look at me and they want to see what the story is. And I think that's why that piece is so powerful to me. And I think it speaks to the mission of my particular mission in music, which is um, I have this shirt that says music is meant to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. Mm -hmm. And I love to wear that shirt because um, one time I think someone at the Jacob's School of Music, one of the voice teachers walked up to me and said, he read it and looked at me and then he saw the top part and he said, I don't agree with that top part, but I like the bottom part. <laughs> and I said, well, from now on, that's gonna be my mission to get you to like that top part, the, which is it's to disturb the comfortable. 
we get so comfortable in our complacency and being separated that we actually are unified in separatism. And what I love is for us to be shaken from that comfort so that we can actually see how both different and the same we are, how both we all have such unique cultures and such unique backgrounds that we bring that creates America, class differences, gender differences, race differences that make this country America. But that Barack Obama speech brings us together that out of many, we are one. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the mission we aspire to. And I think that's what music does both in the ensemble, us creating this ensemble together and in the message of the songs. We're many different backgrounds, many different places, the South, the North, the East, you know, coming together to make this music. But out of many, we're one and we're creating a message and we're inviting these kids to think of how can they be part of the larger community while celebrating who they are. Absolutely. And just as you mentioned at the beginning of this broadcast, as this should be an ongoing conversation and not just something in February, that's so true because this is not just black history. This is America's history. Mm -hmm. You know, we've all benefited or not benefited from the same from the same things. You know, our country started on the backs of other people. And we all need to recognize that this is relevant to all of us, no matter what race we are. These things are so relevant and they should continue teaching about African-American history throughout uh, the school year, because there are black people who have who are extremely great scientists and who are still doing great things and i feel like in our education system a lot of times when we get to uh after slavery is no longer relevant according to the system uh, we don't talk about the great things that african americans are doing every person that i can think of that has to deal with what i've learned in science or um, social studies or math is always a white person and I think that it's important for our kids to know, especially our young black kids, to know that there are people who look just like them doing the same thing and making these differences, especially when it comes to even teachers in schools. I've noticed in our tours that there's not as many um, ethnic <laughs> uh, teachers in these schools. And it's kind of like the students are learning and they don't know that they can do that because they don't see it. And I think that that's also an important part of our job as well. Kids aren't just looking at us saying, oh, my goodness, they're so great. They're looking at us saying, I can do that, too. Mm -hmm. I've had one African-American professor in college yeah. and only one African-American male professor. And I've only had two African-American professors in college. And one of my minors was in African-American theater. <laughs> so <laughs> um, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think. Hopefully, I hope that these kids see this message and see the show and start to ask those important questions and ask, I wonder if I could do that or something like that. Absolutely. That's my that would be my big hope from it. That's great. Well, um, are there things I should have asked or anything else you wanted to say before we stop recording that we didn't cover? Well, thank you for having us. Yeah. That's Absolutely. what I was saying. This has been, <laughs> it's been yeah. so been wonderful awesome. to talk with you. Yeah, thank Absolutely. you all. It's been really fun. It's been really fun. Um, and uh, I guess Kentucky Opera is going to be back in Eastern Kentucky um, in March doing some performances in schools, not of this show, but um, we'll try and keep fo listeners in the loop on WMMT um, once we know the details of that. The so Barber of Seville. The Barber of Seville mm. is going to be back. That's right. Um, yeah, so we'll definitely try and share out some of those dates so that people can know if they want to see live opera that it's coming to Letcher County. 
<laughs> awesome. Well, thank you all so much. Thank, thank you. For this episode of Mountain Talk, featuring the cast of Kentucky Opera's O oh Freedom. If you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes again, visit our website, www.wmmt.org, or download Mountain Talk wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio.